I don't know that I would necessarily, well, let me put it this way. Uh, will it lead to another reformation? I think I have a hope maybe. I don't even know if it's a hope. I have an inkling that there will be a new kind of Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. Whether that looks like church or not, I don't know. Um, it may be more of a social movement, but I thought I, you were going to stop at new kind of Jesus. And I was like, Oh, I'm intrigued. Well, well, I think what we need is an old kind of Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> nah, um, good one. Welcome to episode 252 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brew pint, a fine wine, or whatever happens to be in your glass. On today's episode, the Reverend Shannon Weston, Ogan Holder, and yours truly, Brian Burkoff, will address and engage what's happening through a theological lens with a good brew in hand. And that good brew might be in your very own uh, Pub Theology Live pint glass which you can get when you become a patron. You can sign up at patreon.com slash ptlive, and there you will get access to a lot of extra content, like pre- and post-show banter. Um, as we were discussing in the pre-show today, our entire fr- our entire relationship, the three of us, is pretty much comes down to <laughs> comes down to this podcast. But it's a very deep connection, clearly, because sometimes we spend as much as 30, 45 minutes catching up in the pre and post show on all subject matters, personal and professional. So if you want to see, if you want to see a friendship between three seemingly disparate clergy people play out in real time over the years, become a patron. That's patreon.com slash BT live. And as always, thank you to our current patrons. Today, we'll be discussing favorite books, bare minimum Mondays, faith and disillusionment. So with that, we will need a drink. So fellas, what are you drinking today? Let's start with Brian, since he's decided he's going to go back to the batch of beer that he had with that had expired, like when the Romans still ruled the world. So. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. So I thought I had gone through the old beers I bought. But then when I pulled this one out of the fridge today, I looked at the bottom and it's a little hard to read, but I'm pretty sure it says April 29, 2015. So, oh my God. Another eight year old beer. Um, this one is a citramelon session ale from Pawpaw Brewing. Uh, that's in Pawpaw, Michigan, which is maybe an hour south of where I am in Holland. And let's see what happens when I crack this one open. I'm I'm less worried about what happens to the beer than to you. Oh, Oh, not good, friends. Boom goes the dynamite. (laughs) Those of you that are listening and not seeing, it's not good. I've made a huge mistake. All right, look at the bottom of that can. I want to see the expiration date. Oh my god, it's 2015. 2015. 2015. I'm gonna go get some napkins. I'll be right back. Uh, You need a mop. (laughs) Napkins. That's a mop. That's a mop cleanup. Oh, God. oh my God! Clean up on aisle, risk taker. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> oh man, I am soaked. 
<laughs> that's what no I'm gonna leave. i didn't want to spill it on my keyboard so i held it above my lap and now i'm so <laughs> oh, no. all right ogan what are you drinking <laughs> Uh, I'm not nearly as adventurous. Um, uh, this is my dry wheat, as you know, I'm, I'm gen gently weaning myself off. Um, and it's a dry week after a few days of, of travel. I'm here in, in, in Casablanca. Um, so I'm just doing a, a green tea. Um, and as I am realizing, it is 7.15 p.m. here, and I'm about to drink a cup of caffeinated tea. So I didn't think green tea was caffeinated. I think it is. I think uh, like herbal teas are decaffeinated. I think green and oh, black yeah. is caffeinated. So yeah, I may I may not be sleeping for a while. All right, wow. but there we go. What do you got? So I'm going um, to one of my basic beers today. Um, I'm drinking New Belgium's Fat Tire um, out of Colorado. It's a one classic. of my go-to classics yep. that um, is one of the lower end. It's a five point two percent. It's one of the lower ends that I drink that. Um, you know, I kind of said I'm drinking less these days and that's a good thing, but also, you know, my, I just want to go to sleep after. So, you know, <laughs> so, so are you still, are you still having that weird, like medication, alcohol related side effect you talked yeah, about? I'm trying to figure out what it is. Cause I've been on medications before where the, like, some antidepressants and stuff like one drink feels like two or three drinks. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's not really what it is. It's just more of like upset stuff. Like I don't really want to, gotcha. it's not as tasty or whatever. Right. Like, so I don't know. It changes. I don't know if it changes the way it tastes. I don't know. If, I don't know. I'm still drinking though. So, you know, but I'm, but I'm going back to like mild flavors and right. you know things that are that. So this might be in it. This might end up being one of those drugs that, you know, they make for one reason and become something else. So like the, what is it? The Ozempic that was for, I don't know, uh, blood sugar or diabetes or something that's now, a, you know, ends up being a weight loss drug. And so maybe this thing is now going to be, end up, we going to help people get off alcohol because off we, alcohol we make it taste bland. <laughs> that's funny. That's <laughs> funny. So mine is a 4.8%, but I think now it's probably 8.4%. It's probably the numbers I, reverse after eight years, I think. Brian, stop drinking. Like, don't drink it. <laughs> Just it's what I have today. I'm going to drink it. Unless it's like, you know, let me take a step. I mean, I mean, how does beer work once you're done and you like you can it? Does it keep fermenting or does it stop? I think it, I think it the has fermentation. To process stops doesn't it um, i don't know that it has to does it have to i don't it stops it. for five years and then it re-engages <laughs> i have no idea i don't know it actually tastes okay so that it's it's all right because everything that tastes okay never made us ill <laughs> exactly yeah right <laughs> on to today's topics okay would you rather if you're Choosing a book to read, read something that's fiction, nonfiction, or a God give me the will to live type self improvement book. Help me. Or other type of self improvement book. Um, I'm fiction all the way. I I mean, yeah. Okay, that's easy. There you go. I I read all three. Um. So I read fiction, like I read novels, 
and I'm not a sci-fi like I just like I actually am weird in that like I like I like to combine self-improvement and novels (laughs) I like like stories of you know whatever um I gotcha yeah uh I don't what does that mean (laughs) like Oh, like the monk um, who sold his Ferrari or something like that. Uh, no, well, no, but it's it's more no? like, like I like Sue Monk kid books and I like Homegoing. I forget the name, the woman that wrote that. Um, that are where there's character development, spiritual depth. Yes, and there, you know, there's um, cultural, you know, depth as well. And um, I just finished reading Such a Fun Age that was really good in that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, where, where people do the work in the book, you know, people are doing their gotcha. own personal work in the book. Gotcha. Um, I also really like to read about historical figures. I really, I really enjoy reading memoirs of comedians. That's one of my, like, mm. that's, that's Derek and I in the car. We'll listen to comedians read their own, you know, books. That's super, that's one of our road trip things. Um, and I read a lot of self-improvement books, not so much the like woo-woo spiritual ones, but like big fan of Brene Brown, you know, big fan of yes. um, like, and, and honestly, like I read a lot of books for work. Like I read a lot of team coaching books and, right. you know, organizational development books. And, and I'll be honest, when I say read, like I read novels, the rest of them, I probably listen to like there's there's very few books in organizational in in self-improvement or work um or even nonfiction that i actually read the book of i i usually listen to them yeah now that's it's interesting you say that i i can't stand listening to a fiction audiobook yeah i don't but i will listen to a fiction a non-fiction audiobook Mm -hmm. the same Mm -hmm. And, and and vice vice versa that's, yeah, yeah, I want to I want to read the fiction. Like I love having a hardcover book in my hand and yeah. opening it and I get them off in the library and you know, I love reading a good book that way. But the other ones I'm I'm better off listening, you know. So, if you didn't have to read the nonfiction for work, would you read as much? Mm. You know, it's interesting. So, I don't know that we've talked about this on the show. I don't have have we that like I didn't so I didn't learn to read for a very long time. Um, I <laughs> have really what is good... a long. What is a long time? Fourteen? <laughs> like um, no. Well, like not disparaging but... any teenagers who haven't learned how to read. Just give, give us a context here. I was like ten before okay. I learned how to read, and well, yeah, um, I just had I developed I highly developed my power of listening, <laughs> and um, I'm a I'm an auditory learner anyway and so would pay attention to everything and I also had an older sister that would was kind of smarty pants and would read everything to me anyway why 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 um sure and when I was growing up even in like first grade 90 percent of stuff was standardized tests like multiple choice so I would just guess I mean I knew some words you know but like basic words but I didn't I didn't really read. So like even once, so my fourth grade teacher caught it. She was the one that was like, oh, she doesn't actually know how to read. And so like fifth and sixth grade were me playing catch up. Wow. Yeah. Learning to read. Good for you. And then, um, 
and then in high school actually was when my my English teacher, my freshman year of high school, Mrs. Scott, who I still love and adore and follow on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she introduced me to audiobooks and she would have me like we were reading Romeo and Juliet and she would have me listen and read at the same time. <laughs> and honestly, that was how I really learned to read, like really learned to read. Nice. Um, and so it, it, and then of course I just, I read all through college and seminary out of necessity. Yeah. Then you said, I'll go to seminary and have to read dusty old theological tomes. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I really don't like, and it wasn't until like after the kids, I remember Maggie, when Maggie was born and I had so much time like nursing, like that's when I actually started reading novels. Mm, um, Cause I was nice. literally stuck in a chair for hours at a time. Sure. And I would start, and I started on my phone. I started reading novels and then I went to a love of a good physical book. And yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I, if I'm going to read a book through, it's probably fiction and yeah. And I want to be able to have time and it's like, I got a good spot I can sit and, you know, maybe a snack and I'm just going to get into this book. If it's nonfiction it, for me as well, tends to be work related um, for a meeting I'm leading or a sermon I'm giving. And then I'll kind of like use a book as a resource and like, you know, get the information I need from it without really maybe reading the whole thing through. Uh, and maybe it's one I've read in the past. And so I know that that info is there somewhere kind of thing. Yeah, I do that too. I was thinking that too. Like I'll pick and choose chapters or I'll yeah. read, a, I'll read a third of it and be like, okay, I know what this is, you know, <laughs> right. I got this, you know, exactly. Like exactly. this, you know, this book on my desk that I'm like a third of the way through and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know what this is. But it's, know. it's sort of a, it's, it's so basically using the same tricks you used before fourth grade. Uh, I was going to say, it's a testament to the fact that you made it that far and was able to not just survive in the world, but basically fool everyone else. That I mean, I also think it says something about the Kentucky school, public school system. <laughs> There's that too. Um, and yet, you know, but like. But still. It, it's interesting, like. And and we do, and we should talk more about, you know, the way, quote unquote, trouble kids, which are not often troubled, they're just, you know, but are just passed through grades right. because no teacher wants to deal with them. And there was some of that happening too, that like, yeah. you know. Um, and and just, there was probably less attention uh, when we were growing up to different learning styles than there is today. Yeah. Sure. Which is right. That's part of it. Like I was failing the written stuff, but I could tell you exactly what you. Yeah, said. I could. Right. Not a gauge it. of intelligence at all. Right. Yeah. And In fact, like, eh, I would say the opposite. Like they're, they're like exactly. Eh, that's that's good enough. Yeah, she knows. The stuff. And it's interesting raising children to like also kind of watching them have that too, and getting them to le lean into their skills of like. Hey, listen, maybe you are an auditory learner and, and it's not that I can't, but like, I still do better with nonfiction or work when I listen to it. I still do better. I still learn better when I do that. Sure. So there anyway. you go. Yeah. Not that you all needed a recitation in my history, but there it is. <laughs> oh, but there it is. Okay. Um, have you heard of this idea called bare minimum Mondays? Uh, I read about it from a writer. 
Holly Thomas, based in London, and she says, many of us spend Sundays making insanely long to-do lists, putting ourselves under paralyzing pressure to get our lives together, and as a result, we hit Mondays primed for stress and unable to focus or engage properly with work, and this sort of sense of chaotic unease can really hit us throughout the week if we start the week that way. So she learned about bare minimum Mondays where you make the conscious decision to coast on Monday to kind of ease into the week. And then you can really hit the ground running on Tuesday because you haven't pushed yourself too hard out of the gate. Is that something you can relate to? Have you practiced that? Have you heard of others doing this? I don't feel this is a new thing. Mm-mm. I feel like how many like, people show up to work hungover on Monday? Like it's all about branding, then that's all I'm saying, right? <laughs> like people don't hit their peak till like I don't know, maybe Wednesday if they're lucky. Yeah, right. And then, like honestly, and in in your typical job, you got like maybe two good days of peak productivity, right? Tuesdays and Wednesdays, because after you hit hum day, it's like the slowdown starts. There's nothing, nothing productive is happening on Fridays. Um, it is for me. And, and well, I, like I said, your average Monday through Friday, we, we, we have very weird jobs. We've always had. True so, enough. We have different so, schedules. I, I, exactly. But even, even if you take that five day, you know, assuming we do a two day weekend, whenever those two days land, sure. your, your, your first day after the two day weekend, like you were, you still trying to ramp up to get back into the groove. So you're not, you're not at peak yet. So I don't know this. I, I read this and I was like, isn't this what we always did? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's harder for me to gauge because I, I am a pastor and clergy have different schedules than a lot of, you know, Monday through Friday folks. And so, you know, when we're pastoring at a church, you know, we kind of le- leading up toward Sunday, like it feels like that's when things just busier, 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 you throw a few evening meetings in and all of that. And so I try to take Mondays off. I don't do very well at it. So I'm already practicing this because I'm like, it's Monday, made it through Sunday, going to chill out for a day before Tuesday comes. And then I re-engage all the things that are on my to-do list. So you don't have a, uh, don't, don't you do two days back to back? off like a Saturday, Sunday, or, or how's that? No, I, well, I mean, for me, it's like once church is over on Sunday, I kind of consider the rest of Sunday day off. No, Sunday morning is a full day. It <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say a full day of work. <laughs> it kind like, of is. It's not about hours. No, it really right. is like Sunday morning is a full day of work. It um, is. It is. So I, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't get two true days, I guess that way. To me, this is actually more of an argument for the four-day work week. Yes. yes. Like, why are we doing this? Why, like employers, no, employees are compensating for a five-day work week and saying, then I'm going to do the bare minimum on one of these days. And to be honest, it's maybe two half days, right? Like Monday mm-hmm. morning and Friday afternoons are probably, yeah. you know. A wash. <laughs> a wash. Right. Um, And so, but like, and statistically, like I've read more and more about this recently. I think it's fascinating. I and and statistically, we work better on a four-day work week than a five-day work they week. They just did a massive study, wasn't it? In, a in, massive in study. England or Europe or somewhere. A yep. massive study, four-day work, and people are more productive. 
people are much more productive. Yes. And because they have a day of the week to get all those things done that they're having to do during work hours or leave work for, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. Um, and so, and, and we know how beneficial that is having had a job, you know, where we did work Sundays and you did have another day of the week that you had freedom to take off and go to the dentist or, you know, make those doctor phone calls or whatever. Not that I didn't do those during the hours that I was going to say, you're just spending your day off going to the dentist. That's no fun. Well, but I also spent my day off doing work half the time too. So it all works out. Totally. But I, I, why do this when we could, we could have a four day work week. We have a new committee that meets monthly and somehow I managed to schedule those meetings for Monday nights. And I'm like, why have you done that? That's, that's a day you don't want to do anything, Brian. Yeah, Brian, why have you done that? I don't know. I, I he's, an, he's, an, he's an unconscious martyr. <laughs> Let's just call it what it an is. unconscious <laughs> martyr. That'll be I on my tombstone. That. Exactly. <laughs> and he's still unconscious, it will say. It's 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 okay to say no. It's okay. okay. It is okay to say no. No, I mean, that's like, I think that's what this is. This is responding to a, we and again, it's not that we don't have enough work for five days. It's that we don't have the capacity for five days. Yeah. Well, and I think as Ogan said, we only have energy to operate at peak performance, you know, not not five days in a row, maybe three of the, you know, five days or four and a half, you know, three and a half, four, whatever. But by the way, if you want to know how they cut out the extra day, um, you will not be surprised to learn it was through meetings. They cut out. <laughs> unnecessary right. meetings and that's how they got the extra six to eight hours back this meeting could have been an email yep there you go they they made their meetings efficient love it and i honestly i think obviously the pandemic disruption made a whole lot of workplaces realize oh if people aren't physically here in person where we're watching them work like every day things still get done mm-hmm. yep yep absolutely all right. So, uh, former professor of divinity at Harvard, Harvey Cox, uh, wrote that faith begins with awe in the face of mystery, but awe becomes faith only when it takes the next step. And then he quotes the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, back from the mid 1800s, who once remarked that as soon as we're old enough to look around, we find ourselves on a ship that has already been launched. As we become aware of the mysteries of world, self, and other, they always arrive suffused with the specific languages, emotions, and thought patterns of a particular cultural tradition, and they supply the theories, myths, and metaphors with which we respond. In other words, nearly all of us are born into a setting in which we're introduced to beliefs about God, faith, the world and those form us deeply and it isn't until we're a bit older that we begin to sort of consciously look around ask some of the deeper questions and we as Kierkegaard said but the boat's already left the harbor and we're out to sea on this thing whether we wanted to or not or whether we long-term identify with that tradition or not but it shapes us deeply even if we end up leaving that faith system belief system or deeply engaging it and remaking it in a way that works for us. So I just want us to discuss that notion of, you know, being born into a particular tradition and 
how has that formed you? How has that blessed you? You know, how has that created a, a place from which you could grow? How has that aggravated you? Sounds like someone was having a midlife crisis uh, when they when they came up with this. Um, it is well, it's it's true, right? Um, I was actually talking about this earlier. I made a post about this earlier because when we're looking at all of these states that are doing these ridiculous like anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ legislation and all this mess and the idea of you know paternalism is the idea that we are born into this culture this like white supremacy culture that says the right way is you know mono heteronormativity and we're born into that and and patriarchy and 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 a lot of that is also religiously informed and it's not like somebody over at least it's system and teaches us these things. It's like it's like osmosis. We just absorb it. Everything in our culture reinforces it. And boom, there it is. And then if we're lucky, some of us go through a whole once, twice, maybe if we're lucky, three times of deconstruction crises of faith in, in around personhood and and all sorts of stuff. And then at some point we finally go, all right, here's actually who I want to be, and here's what I actually believe in now in, in in terms of the ship being sailed it's like yeah we do that but but by the time we get around to that we've already there's already another generation that's reinforced the things that's <laughs> already uh perpetuated all the things and and that's why it's so hard to change stuff yes um, it's like you get to the dock and you're like can i join the buddhist right oh, and they're like that ship has already sailed you know, um, and so, for example, I, I read this stat today that in spite of the gains we've made in terms of uh, womanhood equality, we're still 300 years at this at our current rate of progress, 300 years to go before women achieve full equality. Uh, and I was like, son of a bitch, 300 years. What is that like four generations, three generations to go at our current rate and you know like can we speed that up a little bit so it's yeah it's it's almost frustrating it's it's like a combination of hopefulness but yet also utter frustration because you know had we known now what we had we known then what we know now might we have shifted things shifted things earlier um but i also believe that it's never too late for us to, you know, turn the boat around or find a new port of call. I don't, because mm -hmm. this, this, this has a sort of like helplessness and despair to it. Like, eh, there's nothing you can do about it now. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I believe that as we keep evolving, transforming, deconstructing, doing all the things that eventually there will, there will be a time where we land on where we need to be. And also more and more people will get there quicker because now deconstructing becomes the norm. It becomes the model. It becomes the, what we all do. We'll start doing it in, at, or at an earlier age, hopefully. Um, and, and things will, things will shift. Yeah. And um, so for fuller context, he, he doesn't sort of speak in this, like it's too late or, or you're stuck. He just notes that you can never not have been formed by the tradition that initially formed you. Like, even if you turn your oh, back on it, it's still a part of who you yeah. are at a core level. 
because because it's in the air. <laughs> it's, it's you know we we teach we teach for example like like you know racism isn't a shark in the water. Racism is the water. Uh, yeah. You know like Western 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 Judaic almost you know Christianity in the U.S. isn't isn't the shark in the water. It it, it is the water. Right. Um, and and even if you grow up in another faith tradition in the U.S., for example, you're still bombarded with that with that mm -hmm. messaging. And, yes. it, and it still informs you in, in some way because it's been so culturalized, you know? Yep. I mean, this sounds a lot like worldview, right? What we talk about of, of like, you can change your thoughts, you can change your opinions, but like, this is the lens of which I have been brought up in to see the world. And racism yep. is a great example of it, you know, of, I think about this a lot of, of how, you know, I was raised in a very racist household and society and yet, you know, rejected that even as a child, but that was still the context of which I was raised. And so can't un, um, and in fact, like that's my worldview, right? Is that the world is racist because I literally grew up in a household in a society in which was racist. So it, it's not, it's interesting the way this quote is done because he says something super interesting and then completely takes a left turn in my opinion, which is, you know, faith begins with awe in the face of mystery, but awe becomes faith when it takes the next step. What is the next step? Like, <laughs> so I think in his mind, the next step is when we ascribe all of these theories, metaphors, stories from a, from a particular tradition and apply it to the mystery and then too often we'll say now we know what the mystery is right um i wish i could remember there was a great quote about wonder or awe recently that i read that i i can't pull it off right now but um the other thing i'm thinking about with this i so i remember so i have a minor in religious studies from um when i was an undergrad and i I remember studying world religions and various different kinds and, and really beginning to see that God thread, right? The golden thread that we see all through religions and having to make a decision of, am I going to continue like a personal decision? Um, I was, I'd, I'd attended a universalist church a few times and like, is this the direction I want to go in? Is this not, you know, just asking those very I'm what 22, you know, or 20 asking these very basic faith questions. And, and what this is getting at is kind of where I was, which is, you know, I was born into a tradition and I can live out this faith within that tradition. And I can actually become part of that faith and try to make the faith more inclusive and better in some way. And, you know, whatever, by living in the tradition that I was born into. I don't know that it makes sense for me to run off and be a Buddhist monk. I don't know that that is, you know, what what my world is really calling me to do. Sure. Um, but to I do ran, this- I ran because you are more noble than I am and I don't want to work that hard. So <laughs> I, I, I I ran from the faith of my upbringing. I'm pretty much almost running out of you, running away from unity as well. <laughs> well, the faith of my upbringing, I very much did run from, right? Like I. Cause I couldn't become part of the Southern Baptist church in any way that I, right. there wasn't a space for you. Yeah. There wasn't a space for me, but I found this where people would have me in that space within Christianity, gotcha. um, which is adjacent, which is obviously not, 
not that distant from the tradition you were raised in, right? It's a, it's a sibling. I mean, it's still a Christian tradition. Still Christian. Um, I've had plenty of Baptists call me not Christian, but nonetheless, you know, (laughs) no doubt. It's always a badge of honor. Exactly. Like, thank you. Thank you very much. That's the, uh, what kind of Christian are you saying? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not that kind of Christian. Exactly. Exactly. As right. I like to say, I'm in, I'm in unity, which is barely, you know, the big Ten Christianity. We're, we're the tent flap, fluttering in the breeze, just the barely, barely there. I like barely, it. Barely there. I like it. I, I think this is a very academic quote that is hard to decipher. Um, and I think that there could be a, a better way to say it. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, the faith that has formed me still, you know, this is one of the faith is one of those things that I look back on and I'm like, it brought me here. So as much as I didn't like it in my early years, it brought me to where I am. Yeah. And I like that way of looking at it. And I've learned just as much by what I disagree with in faith traditions as to what I agree with. Yes. And so if that's what he's kind of asking us to do, I think that that's important. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to move from one academic quote to another. <laughs> uh, this is from a book that uh, many... I'm a us... woman of the people, Brian. <laughs> like that? A man of the people? I said, I'm a woman of the people. Like, oh, you need to give me the... like, yeah, yeah no you know. No doubt. I don't need <laughs> platitudes, but like, come down a little bit. <laughs> so here's another quote from a textbook many had to read in seminary. Williston Walker, in his book, The History of the Christian Church, said the Reformation achieved great popular success because it satisfied or promised to satisfy the needs of many people who earnestly desired the consolations of the Christian religion. They were sincere seekers after salvation who looked to the church for succor or, you know, salve, and not finding it there, turned against the traditional religion and its representatives with all the anger of disillusioned love. So the Reformation, obviously, this big moment in church history when, you know, this whole branch called Protestantism broke away from the Catholic Church. Well, it seems today people are again turning against, you know, the church in its various forms with uh, anger and disillusionment. Is that in your view, going to lead toward another sort of reformation moment where churches adapt and hear those concerns? Or is this really pointing to the demise of the Christian church going forward again in its various forms? Sucker, I hardly know her. Um, I think that there's not going to be another reformation because we have we keep having splinter denominations mm-hmm. right so you know look at you know the methodist church for example that recently just basically split in two right, right? and and maybe one of those halves will eventually split again and right. you know i just made fun of my own denomination as being barely christian adjacent like we splintered off from religious uh, uh, Christian science, which splintered off. So I think we keep having these splinters yeah. of, of things because whatever we're in, that belief isn't working for us or or somebody is doing like a mini reformation within a movement and going right. like, we're going to start our own thing. But I think what's happening with all these splintering offs and divisions and all that we are going to get to a point where the Christian message is so 
diluted, so splintered that it ultimately will be the end of it because, because yeah, there's, you know, like when you keep dissolving things into, into the, the parts are still there, but they're, they're invisible almost. So I think we are, and I'm all for it. Don't hear me. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I think we are splintering ourselves into non-existence, which I think needs to happen. Okay. Yeah, it, it is interesting, you know, especially the history of Protestantism, where it just is like split after split after split, and it's often around what we feel like we have found a, a more true path of either belief or practice, but often both than where we came from. So we're going to start our own thing that's very similar, but we're going to make the necessary adjustments. And then right. down the road, there'll be another, you know, group of people. And uh, this is not just in Christianity, Buddhism. There's a lot of different sure. sects of Buddhism, of Hinduism, sure. like every religion is is going through this. And I think this is part of the frustration that that people have with with church, right? right? You know, in in 10 square mile block how many how many christian denominations you have and they're all claiming to be the right one or the best one or the one you should follow and then it's like well shoot i why bother <laughs> yeah yeah and you know my denomination the ucc united church of christ began with several strands of protestantisms that were somewhat related but their own thing came together so there are examples of you know the opposite happening but it tends to be less of that right. but but and also that's like well our numbers are dwindling how about we join together exactly. to reinforce things so that's right. also i think we're going to see more of that down the road i think yeah i don't know that i would necessarily well let me put it this way uh, will it lead to another reformation i think i have a hope maybe i don't even know if it's a hope i have an inkling that there will be a new kind of jesus movement Mm -hmm. Whether that looks like church or not, I don't know. Um, it may be more of a social movement, but I thought I, you were going to stop at new kind of Jesus, and I was like, "Oh, I'm intrigued." Well, well, I think what we need is an old kind of Jesus, right? Like <laughs> that um, good one. But but I really, you know, the Reformation is a baby still, or you know, That's maybe fair. we're maybe we're at our teenage years. And is a difficult thing, you know, that, I mean, Phyllis Tickle said this before she died. She said that the church renews itself every 500 years and it's been 500 years since the reformation. So how is the church going to renew itself? Yeah. And that's the question we're still asking. And will that be a renewal or will that be a, you know, because you're right, Ogan, like in, in what, I hear underneath what you're saying is like, there are so many elements of the church today that need to die. Yep. And, and whether that's full denominations and big in, in all the churches and whatever, or whether we can do that in, whether we can actually have a revival for let's go back to that word. Right. And renew ourselves um, in this movement. But what I, what is missing so there's all kinds of factors, right? That were how, what, how many years out from the, you know, enlightenment period and the industrial revolution and the fact that we don't need religion and church, you know, anymore as much as we used to. 
Um, we've replaced it with science. And, and yet what we haven't figured out yet is what replaces what the church did for community and belonging. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And so that to me is where I don't, I, I do think there needs to be a new reformation or a new movement that addresses that community and belonging in a way that we haven't had before, which to me goes back to gospel, right? Yeah, That's exactly right. Exactly what Jesus did is create a new movement of belonging and community. Yeah. And many reform movements are a returning to roots more than a brand new, you know, teaching or way of being. Yeah. When you when you talk about replacing uh, about the community replacing that, I think for a lot of folks, they thought social media would do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think they're realizing not so much, or or that we haven't really we're only we're only just uncovering and and reconciling with the dark side of social media and and the toxicity and the dangers of it. And we're we're only recently just beginning to go like, all right, we we need to reform this <laughs> uh, because it's 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 doing so much harm that maybe the original premise of it was a good idea of connection, but here's the harm that comes with it. So so I don't I don't know that's I don't know that that's going to work because there because it's not the same as in person, right? Well, and feeling, it's the same the energy. One, it's not the same as in person, but two, it also, it's the same problem that the church has, which is it suddenly became a non-trusted institution. Right. And, and then also became splintered. and Yeah. And so uh, that's well. what we're finding with social media is, and 24 hour news and everything else is that it becomes a, we can't trust this thing that we used to be able to trust. So I'm hearing, uh, I'm hearing the problem is us, the people, because we are the common denominator. Well, in all these we things. are the common denominator, but <laughs> yeah. how we organize ourselves and form ourselves and how we lead ourselves is a big factor mm. in all yes. of this. In, 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 indeed, which ties us back to the, you know, what, what are we, what is embedded in us when we are born and in our earliest years? Because if, if the same crap keeps getting embedded in us and we keep maintaining like these systems of oppression, then if if that's all we know, that's all we we'll, we'll have. And I was having a uh, speaking mm-hmm. of Facebook, I was having a, a a Facebook exchange with with a friend of mine uh, back in Barbados, and he he was he was lamenting the absence of fathers and how it's affecting young boys. But he prefaced it in like you know it was it was a young boy, and this boy is maybe eight, maybe ten. Um, and it's at their school uh, sports day. And rather than going out, running the race or doing whatever activity, his mom was there and and this kid was, you know, um, I guess anxious or upset or something. And, and mom was consoling him and, and he was a participating. And my friend posted that, you know, dad showed up and sorted that shit out so that he could go participate. And I said... And by sorting that shit out, are you talking about basically invalidating this kid's feelings and 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 forcing him to do something and thereby reinforcing the patriarchy of, you know, and I went on and on and on. And and I'm like, this is this is what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh for, for a lot of us, if we're not aware of it, like we see things like empathy and compassion and 
honoring the emotional needs of of especially your boys as weakness um and therefore we perpetuate and and one of the responses the guy sent me was you know we, this way we are preparing this boy for the real world and i'm like but we create the real world right and all we're you know and all we're doing is reinforcing this nonsense because we just taught this kid that uh we gotta we gotta force our ways into things we don't like we we can't honor our feelings and emotions and and we can't receive and something is is less masculine because we're receiving the 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 comfort and the solace the sucker of our of our mothers right so it's like yeah when at what point do we especially as men go like mm, no we want a different experience but it's hard to say that because the fear is well if i start with my kids then they're not prepared for what's already right there right so is this is we we have this overlap phase where we kind of got to do the both and this um, is why it's going to take 300 years right Right? because i i want them to live differently and yet i need i as a parent have a responsibility to prepare them for the world in which they're going to go in which is not as i would want it to be so i'm trying to do both and so i'm teaching them both how to survive in the world that they're given and how to do yes. this new way. And that's why it's going to take 300 years rather than us all deciding that we're not going to send our kids out in this new way, you know, or right. this new. But I, I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, as we talk about this, of this shift, it, is that that belonging isn't, um, it's not surface, right? It's not, I mean, it's a deep sense of belonging. And I think we also have to be really honest about how long has it been since the church actually provided that as well, mm, yeah. right? And so these are the questions we need to be asking. And how do you cultivate that deep sense of belonging and community? And so how do you become, how do you create true crust, crust, trust in this community, right? Like, I don't know how to bake a pie crust. I buy it from home, but other people, <laughs> usually women in the church know how to do it from scratch. So yeah, no. or do a stuffed crust pizza either way. I mean, either I way. don't know how to do that either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. And I, I'm just, and I'm just thinking about this question about reformation and church and Ogan's joining us from Morocco. I don't know if we said that. Uh, and, you know, th- does that feel like it, does this feel like, irrelevant uh when you're in a place of where there's a totally different sort of religious ethos and you're outside of you know uh the west um i don't know how does that well it uh ramadan is coming soon and i am told it's going to be a whole different experience here when that's when that when that comes up but but it's interesting because i go from the u.s to barbados and you know, the patriarchy is alive and well there. And then I come to Morocco where it's even more alive and well, right. Uh, sort, sort of deal. Um, and, and it's, 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 it's weird because you see both the signs to Shannon's point, you see the signs of progress and change, but they almost stand in minuscule next to the continuation of, of what is. And there's a lot of lip service being paid to the change. But then when it comes down to it, not a lot of actions are being taken, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, yes, 300 years doesn't sound so, kind of actually sounds like, oh, it's actually 
going to be that quick. Right. When you hear when you hear about it. But Brian, what I find interesting about your question is, you know, we as Americans often pride ourselves as the melting pot. And yet one of the things we might lose in that, which might need to be lost, I'll just throw that out, but is so with other religions, there's a, um, so say Judaism, there's an ethnic element and then there's a religious element. And so the belonging could be to one and not the other or to both, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, we've lost a little bit of that as as Christians, to or as american christians more specifically we've lost the belonging simply by being you know i'd say more than a little and i think what's beginning to replace that is political partisanship right because we do we want belonging like we seek it out in so many different ways and so we make clubs and we make you know all these other things but it but politics is really on a on a global scale where that's coming global as in like the whole, you know, really coming into play in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's right, and that sucks. Yeah, <laughs> my personal mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, and and I guess the thing that struck me as I was thinking about you know Ogan setting and this question is that you know in my mind the church remains um, relevant and fresh when it takes seriously the concerns uh, that are true for all humans, you know, the challenges of of our particular time and place um, and addresses those seriously and sincerely and tries to, as you said, Shannon, returning to the old Jesus who invited us to to love all our neighbors, not just a select few, and to address the things that are, you know, impacting us in a material way, whether that's poverty, political oppression, uh, racism, et cetera, like a lot of things that the church too often has supported instead of sought to address and and change. Um, and even addressing those in questionable ways, right? And for sure, let's be honest about it, right? Like, um, I'll just call out my own denomination of are they really doing the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racism, or are they, asking everyone to participate in the woke Olympics, you know, and there's a big difference in those two things. Um, and so are you passing a litmus test or are you doing the, the true work, the deep work, So the deep work. And uh, I'll leave that, that as a question. Yeah. <laughs> and that D work, well, it's very rhetorical, but, <laughs> but part of, but part of that deep work, part of that deep work, which a lot of churches, denominations, religions don't want to look at is, um, yeah, we, we got the DEI things going on, but we don't address the actual theology and teachings, both content and, and, and pedagogy, because, you know, this is, this is where the decolonization work comes in. Who, who, who was this originally built for? Yeah. Who was this originally serving? Who were the creators of it? Okay. And what are the implicit biases that work they way into the theologies and the teachings? Because if you don't take a hard look at those, I don't care how many DI initiatives you you implement, you just stacking them on top of this foundation that is still broken. Right. Mm-hmm. Some folks are like, hey, I was just born on this ship. I didn't build it. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But but that's that's hard to look at. I just I just wrote an article about this. I look at my own denomination. It was started by a white heterosexual married couple in the Midwest, right? right. And in the sure. late eighteen hundreds, right? And and it's clear because when you look at Unity's history. You know, they, they built they built this like, you know, headquarters in Missouri and like in, in the Jim Crow era, while they pushed back against overt racism by saying, oh, no, we can have black students come and be enrolled and be ordained and all that. Those black students couldn't live on campus. They couldn't swim in the right. pool. So it was still right. reinforcing these cultural norms. Now, yeah. again, we can't say that the founders were anti-racist not that because the word didn't exist but because they were just like it was not a thing on their radar because right. perhaps they were intentionally creating this movement and these teachings to cater to a white audience because that's who was around them and it's yeah. not making them a bad not making them bad people in any way shape or form but it's simply saying they couldn't help who they were right so yep. Yep. so can we look at our teachings can we look at how our teachings were designed to be taught and go like, yeah, we didn't, we, there were a whole lot of groups we didn't take into account mm-hmm. that yes. weren't taken into account when this was created. And, and we gotta, we gotta deconstruct those. We gotta unpack those. And that, I think when you talk about reformation, I think that's where the work, the true work is going to come in. Cause a lot of people are not going to want to do that. That's hard work. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I totally agree. So we're a little uh, church heavy today. So, you know, just a touch. What's happening in your life, Brian? (laughs) I don't I don't know what's happening. But but here we have a quote uh, from authors Daniel Johnson and Charles Hambrick Stowe in their book, Theology and Identity. And they note that some denominations establish their identity by inspecting the walls for breaches and requiring those persons inside to conform to essential standards. And I think probably we've all experienced this at some level, right? That sometimes a lot of the energy is put on who's not towing the line, whether that's orthodoxy, theology, or practice. And then we want to sort of witch hunt them. Um, I'm and- like, is this theology and identity or Republican Party and identity? I'm, I'm, get the titles mixed up. <laughs> and then, right, and and a lot of the energy can be around finding people who aren't measuring up rather than the inward work of let's all live to our better ideals and, you know, maybe a more healthy center than um, what this is talking about. Uh, And so I guess, yeah, can a, can a church or community exist without quote unquote essential standards, or is it the way that we hold the standards that has to change? Well, for me, the, the problem with the standards is that we, we turn them into binary, right? So it's a right or wrong, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, gender, a fluid spectrum, <laughs> right? We, we for, for some people, we go like, this is a, we, we create this arbitrary point where we say up to this point, you are following the standards, obeying the standards, whatever. Once you cross this point, then you're not. Right. Um, and and adhering to these standards, it's like you know this is this is how you belong. This is the this is the and it was the cost of entry, sort of sort of deal. But realizing that that nothing is no, there, there is no black and white. It's all gray. It's it's, it's all a, a fluid spectrum. Back to that. Why do things? Why do we have the splinterings and of the unless you have so the on. truth? 
unless you have right. <laughs> so I th- I, there's a couple things in here that's interesting, mm. like conform to essential standards. Well, what are those essential standards, right? Like, and are we, um, I don't necessarily. Because yeah, that doesn't feel like a bad thing, right? Right. Like, shouldn't there be some, you know, like, hey, this is who we are. Like, if you claim to be a welcoming congregation, you should define what that is and you should uphold that as a value. And that's a good standard to have. And that's a good standard. And if somebody's walking in the door, turning, you know, someone away, like, well, you know, maybe we need to have a talk with that person. I mean, this is just the flip side of where, you know, the first part of my brain goes. So, and I, I know I've said this before, um, Anna Carter Florence, I heard her, she's a preaching professor at Columbia seminary and she preached a sermon one time and, and she gave this analogy of like, you know, we talk about not putting God in a box and, and she's like, I have no problem with there being a box and putting God inside of it. Just don't put a lid on it, you know? And like, I love that metaphor because like there's no there's nothing wrong with having boundaries and standards where my issue comes in is most of the time in these situations is with problematic gatekeepers. Yes. And that is the difference. Like we can have standards and we can have parameters and we can have boundaries. I think those are actually really good. Yeah. You could argue you need to have those things. Exactly. The question is, who are the gatekeepers and how are they presenting themselves? And are they self-appointed gatekeepers? And yes, yes. what's and, going on there? And that's where people, the problems come in. Some people live for being a gatekeeper. They live for inspecting the walls for breaches and being those who call out others. And this is not, you know, this can happen in a conservative or progressive setting where people love to be the one who says, aha, look at this person ostracize them, rake them over the coals, shame them till no end. Um, I don't know. What so, to... I mean, that's our, that's our question, right? Like the question is, and I've listened as somebody, I, I'm a certain, I'm a leadership development, organizational development pastor, or I was when I was in the church, like that's my focus. And so those gatekeepers are often very unhelpful in that process when you're going through organizational change. Maybe and, unhealthy. And yes, and often, and not all of them are malicious. In fact, very few of them are. They think they're doing what is best. God's work. And yet we have to sit down and say, that's, we're not doing this anymore. You know, that's not how we're working anymore. So we need gatekeepers for the gatekeepers? I wouldn't call that gatekeeping. I would call that (laughs) a different thing. We need, we need, we need, uh, what do you call them? Key masters for the gatekeepers. Yes. Are you the, are you the key master? Man. And the key is to the key master, it can't just be the pastor. It has to be the leadership that are helping that person yes, through that process. For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, as I read this, I, I tend to think, you know, what I've experienced in conservative or even hyper-conservative religious settings where people are really worried about people's doctrine and, you know, if they hear a sermon or read a blog that they disagree with they love to you know point fingers and say hey should we you know discipline this person etc but you can also see it in progressive circles where someone says something that we think oh my gosh that is not culturally sensitive that you know and we we do the same but it feels justified right like because 
we feel like someone is doing something that is wrong and that needs to be pointed out. And, you know, there which is where I would distinguish, like, that's not gatekeeping. That's, you know, that's speaking truth and love, right? Sure. Like if, if, but that's just what made... the others think they're doing. So, so for me to, to Shanna's point, the, the distinction is where's, is there harm being done somewhere? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and who's the harm being done to, and is the is is there a sense of exclusion and or belonging um, at play here? Yeah. And 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 normally normally from from the from a more conservative side, it's about the you know the gatekeeping is about con- conforming, right? And right. and from the progressive side, it, it it more comes across as permission for autonomy. I mean, so 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 those two things are are the it, the method it may come the methodology might be the same and and the you know quote unquote like you know the the the, the phrase du jour is like cancel culture right sure. both sides are canceling but but right. are they doing it for the same reason and to the same people and that's the difference and that's the nuance and you know we do nuance so damn well in this country. <laughs> Yeah. And I would say on the on the more conservative side, it often, like you said, who's being harmed, often people feel like you're harming God or you're, you know, blaspheming God. And it's like God doesn't need to be defended. It's when people are being hurt that I feel right. more a, a need to say, hey, whoa, you know, this needs to be. Yeah. You need to see what you're doing here. And I think on the other side, it's like this standard that needs to be protected or this thing that isn't a human being, but it's our idea of what's you know, truth that needs to be defended. Yeah, those things, we can discuss those in a responsible adult way. But when real people are being hurt, that's right. That to we me, we forget about, we forget about the people sometimes in the yeah. midst, in the midst of all this, so the real people being hurt. But to come back to that, to that question of the reformation, a lot of, a lot of the gatekeepers to Shannon's point are thinking that this is the way they preserve the religion, mm-hmm. preserve the movement. Sure. If we keep, having if we keep if we keep giving an inch here and giving an inch there and giving an inch there who will we be after a mile unrecognizable which isn't necessarily a bad thing i mean ain't that what jesus did well and talk about old jesus i mean i'll go to i'll use this example of the father who was trying to bring his son to be healed by jesus and the disciples were being physical, literal gatekeepers yeah. saying, no, 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 you can't disturb him. You can't see him. And like that, that's the question. Like, are we, we're liter- like, it's really gatekeeping when you're keeping people from Jesus. I mean, that's really the question is when yeah. like, is this line? And that's where harm comes with people, yeah. right? Like you're keeping people from the wildly inclusive love of God. Now, now we're, we have a problem, yes, you know, correct. and that to me is the difference between like gatekeeper and boundary setting or, you know, um, yeah. anyway, you get the idea. No, I like it. That's good. It's good. So yeah, yeah Ogan said, Oh, <laughs> old Jesus. And I almost said, yeah, that's OG. It's OG. The, the OJ. <laughs> old Jesus. But then I'm like, no, it's OJ. Oh, that doesn't yeah. work as well. OJ. The OGJ. No, that doesn't quite roll off the time. No, just... <laughs> well, while we try to figure that out, thank you, friends, for joining us for Pub Theology Live. You can show your love for the show by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Get access to pre- and post-show banter and more 
Visit patreon.com slash ptlive to get started. And a big thank you to our current patrons. Listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Our top cities this week are San Francisco, California, Houston, Texas, and Elkhorn, Nebraska. Boom. You have to stop abbreviating the hard ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like a it's like a geography quiz for you. I know. I'm like Elkhorn, New England is an estate, Brian. <laughs> like <laughs> you can watch the video of these conversations and more on Facebook Live. If you'd like to start a pub theology gathering in your town, find support and resources at pubtheology.com. Until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. Good old Elkhorn, New England. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs>